I am so thankful and privileged and honored to be here this morning and have the awesome privilege of standing in the pulpit where one of my mentors and heroes stands every single weekend to bring you the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm thankful to be here and excited about all that God is doing at Cross Point Church. I am a, a local uh, boy, as Pastor Mike mentioned. I was uh, raised in the Atlanta area, went to Parkview High School, go Panthers, uh, not too far from here. And uh, went off to Liberty University and got a degree, but most importantly, I got a wife. Amen. Was able to be married there and uh, just after graduating from Liberty and went off to, uh, uh, to seminary, to Southeastern Seminary, and God called us out of the deep south to go to New York City, Staten Island, and to be a part of a church planting movement there. I'm in a church that is about 115 years old and has never planted a church in its 115-year history. But I am excited to report to you that in just three weeks, we will be launching two of our pastors and about uh, 150 of our people off to a new part of Staten Island to start a new work this fall. And we are very excited about that. Amen. Thank you. I have an enormous amount of respect for your pastor. Dr. Merritt is, uh, has been a mentor and a hero to me for a long time. I was a student at Liberty and I had the privilege to come down to Georgia to speak at some event. I forget exactly where it was, but I had a Sunday off and free and uh, decided where I wanted to go to church in the Atlanta area. And I thought, well, let's go uh, to hear Dr. Merritt preach. And we did. And, uh, and me and a buddy of mine were there and, and uh, he found out we were there and we had a chance to meet him. And uh, just long story short, once we were leaving there as 18 year old freshman preacher boys, from Bible college, we left with our arms loaded up with books and CDs and all kinds of materials that he gave to us to encourage us and help us along the way. And over the course of time, I've become dear friends with he and Miss Teresa and their boys um, are, are dear friends. I'm thankful for, uh, for all of the Merritt sons as well. And, uh, you know, we have Jesus in common primarily, but close second, we have the Georgia Bulldogs in common. Amen. 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 I, I hear you out there. Praise God. Praise God. For those of you that are, uh, that are not yet Bulldog fans, Pastor, uh, Pastor Merritt likes to say there's room at the dog for you. Amen. You can come and join us. But I'm excited about today. I'm excited about all God has to say to us. I'm going to invite you, if you have a Bible, take it and turn with me to the New Testament book of 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6 together as we talk about what we need to know. Recently, I walked Salem Church through a message series entitled Need to Know, and it was all the way through, verse by verse, through the book of 1 John. And with each passing message, we talked a bit about what you need to know as a follower of Jesus Christ. And in this particular message, I want to talk to you this morning about what it is you need to know about heaven and about earth from 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. And to set up this message, I want to take you back to the late 1800s, and I want to bring your attention to two Two boys from Millville, Indiana. Their names were Orville and Wilbur. They were born about four years apart from one another, and their father, Milton Wright, was a preacher and a businessman who traveled extensively. In 1878, on returning from one of his business trips, uh, Milton Wright brought his son something very special. In 1878, he brought his sons a small model helicopter that was made of cork, bamboo, and paper. And it was powered by a rubber band that if you twisted the blades hard enough, it would eventually create tension in that rubber band. And then if you let it go, this small toy would take off and fly into the air. 
Now this toy, this gift, this souvenir their father brought back to them sparked the imagination of Orville and Wilbur Wright and started them on a lifelong journey of pursuing aeronautics. In 1889, they opened a newspaper. Uh, the West Side News, it was called. Wilbur edited the paper, and Orville was the publisher of the paper, but they also shared a passion for bicycles. Back then, that was a, a craze, a new craze that had swept the country. And so it was at that time that they had a passion for bicycles, but, but, but so they opened a bike shop in 1890, and they were selling bicycles made from their own designs. But their passion, their passion was always flight. They were huge fans and close followers of the German aviator named Otto Lilienthal. Now, Lilienthal passed away in a glider accident while attempting to figure this flight thing out. But Orville and Wilbur, like most young men, felt like they could do it better. And they felt like they had the key to flight. So they moved to Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, because it's known for its strong winds. Now, they had observed birds, and they noticed how birds had these uh, angles for their wings, and they balanced and controlled with their tail feathers. And as they were trying to emulate this motion, they, they, they created a concept called wing warping. Now, this wing warping combined with a movable rudder, the White Wright brothers finally found the magic formula. So on December the 17th, 1903, they succeeded in flying the first free, controlled flight of a power-driven, heavier-than-air plane. It was called the Wright Flyer, and we have a picture of it right here. Anybody want to volunteer to go on a flight? This was a groundbreaking moment. And can I just say, even though this plane was piloted by Wilbur, and it stayed in the air only 59 seconds and traveled a whopping 852 feet, let me just tell you, this moment at this time, it changed everything. It absolutely changed everything. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Back in the year 1900, if you wanted to go from Chicago to London, here's what you had to do. If you wanted to go from Chicago to London, you had to get on a train and travel for 48 hours to Boston, Massachusetts. Once you arrived in Boston, Massachusetts, you had to wait around until there was a boat leaving from Boston to go to London. And once you got on that boat, you would travel for another 15 to 18 days across the Atlantic Ocean, making it into London, England. So if everything goes according to plan, and if you don't die from typhoid fever, the plague, or a stray hurricane nobody knew about, then you would arrive in London, England roughly three weeks after you left Chicago, Illinois. That was 1900. Now fast forward to the year 2019. If you wanna go from Chicago, Illinois to London, England, all you have to do is go over to, to O'Hare Airport, climb onto a Delta 777, and in about seven and a half hours, you will land at Heathrow. Now, seven and a half hours, three weeks enjoying a nice Diet Coke as you fly, dying of typhoid fever. Can we all agree? The Wright brothers changed everything. It's possible because the Wright brothers changed. You don't believe me, think about the FAA. The, F, the Federal Administ Aviation Administration tells us that there are 175,000 private aircrafts and 7,000 commercial airplanes registered in the United States of America. And every single day, nearly 45,000 planes will take off from our nearly 20,000 airports around the country. Every single day, nearly 3 million Americans get on an airplane. I feel like I've done 3 million flights in the last year, if I'm honest. 
honest with you, but every single day, three million Americans will climb on an airplane and they will travel around the world. Nearly 11 million jobs and $445 billion of revenue has been produced by the aviation industry. How's that possible? It's possible because the Wright brothers changed everything. History is replete with people that have changed everything. I'm thinking of people like Jackie Robinson, the amazing uh, player for the, for the Brooklyn Dodgers that, that broke baseball's color barrier. Because of Jackie Robinson and through Jackie Robinson, everything was changed. I'm thinking of people like Martin Luther who took his 95 theses and nailed them to the church door of Wittenberg on August 31st, 1517. That Martin Luther, in his desire for theological purity, he changed everything. And this morning, I wanna talk to you about somebody else that changed everything. This morning I want to talk to you from 1 John chapter 2 about someone else who changed everything. It's more life-altering than the Wright brothers. It's more liberating than Jackie Robinson, and it's more theologically sound than even Martin Luther. So let's take a look from 1 John chapter 2. Now, something I do back in New York with Salem Church, and I hope it's okay if I do it here, is when we read the primary text of our message, I ask our congregation to stand with me. So if you're physically able, would you stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's word? The scripture says, starting in verse number one, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Would you pray with me? Father, in Jesus' name, your word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. And I pray that today you would use your word to penetrate the hearts of your people. That you would call those who don't know your son yet to come to follow Jesus. And that in all things you would receive the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you. You can be seated. The main idea of the message I have for you this morning is this. Is that I need to know that Jesus changes everything. I need to know that Jesus changes everything. It's as, as much as in aeronautics, the Wright brothers changed everything. As much as in sports and racial uh, equality, Jackie Robinson changed everything. And as much as in theology, Martin Luther changed everything. I want you to know that Jesus changes everything. And there are two arenas in which Jesus changes everything that I hope will be an encouragement to you this morning. The first is this, is that Jesus changes our position in heaven. First of all, Jesus changes your position in heaven. If you look back in verses one and two, what you'll find is it's a word of encouragement about Jesus changing everything. Now, in order to understand chapter two, you kind of got to back up into chapter one. And one of the things you got to remember and know about chapter one is John takes a lot of time in chapter one trying to remind everyone, all of those people reading his letter and all those followers of Jesus, John takes a lot of time to remind them that they are sinners, he wants them to remember they have been saved, they've been set apart, but they still battle the flesh because there were those in John's day, and I suppose there are those especially in our day as well, 
that really have come to the belief that they don't really struggle with the flesh anymore. They walk around as though they're sinless, as though they have no problems, no temptations, no issues, no challenges. And John was trying to really blow up that mindset and say to them very carefully, you are still a sinner. And as he's made that argument, he starts chapter two with a little bit of a sarcastic statement, a little bit of sarcasm. Did you catch it? Look in verse one again. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But then what does he say? But if anyone does sin, do you see the sarcasm? Do you see the humor? He spent an entire chapter trying to convince you, you know what, you still battle the flesh and you're still a sinner, you still struggle with the flesh, you still fall short, you still struggle, you have, you have a, a flesh and a, and a spirit at war inside of you and so you're not perfect, you're never gonna be perfect till you get to heaven. And then he gets to chapter two and says, oh, by the way, if anyone sins, just in case you happen to struggle with the, just in case you might have messed up, just in case you only prayed for one hour instead of three hours this morning in your quiet time. It's almost like a sarcastic statement of, well, just in case there may be anyone here who still sins. It's obviously very important. It's important because it's conditional. Notice what he says. He says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Do you see the conditional nature of that statement? What he's saying is this, if we sin, and what he's saying is this, if you are willing to acknowledge that you have sinned or that you have sinned, if you have sinned, he says the conditional statement is, we have an advocate. Now, if that is true, the opposite is also true. If it's true that if we sin, we have an advocate, it's also true if we don't sin, meaning we don't think we sin, we don't have an advocate. The statement is conditional and it hits us in the heart. What he's saying is if we sin, we have an advocate. If we don't sin, we don't have an advocate. Now again, it's impossible for us not to sin, but in pride, if we claim we don't have sin, then we have no need for an advocate. Essentially, we're on our own. And that's serious because if you look at Romans chapter seven, we consider the apostle Paul's statement. He says, for I, do the good, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do not do what I want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And then he says in verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Here's the simple fact. We all struggle with the flesh and we all battle the sin nature. If you're with me, say, uh-huh. We all, there are no perfect people in the room, I assure you. And the apostle Paul, possibly the greatest missionary statesman the world has ever known, acknowledged right up front that he struggles with the flesh every single day. There are things he doesn't want to do that he finds himself doing. There are things that he doesn't want, that he wants to do that he can't seem to make himself do. And then he comes down to the conclusion of verse 24, I'm a wretched man, who's gonna deliver me? And it's a rhetorical question, he knows the answer. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, saints are, without exception, still sinners. In some sense, Jesus is only mine when I can claim the name of a sinner. He says, I do not and cannot have an advocate unless I do sin. I do not want one. Who wants an advocate to plead his cause in a court of law if there's no suit against him? Sin, he says, is a charge against me. I am a sinner. I have an advocate. And dear friends, if you're here today and you refuse to take the label and admit the fact you are a sinner then you are going to miss out on one of the greatest roles that Jesus is playing and will play for you, and that is the role of advocate. 
See, John says little children. He's talking to him as a spiritual father. Most believe that John was well into his 80s or 90s when he was writing this letter. And as a spiritual father, he's telling these young children, listen, here carefully, little children, I don't want you to be worried. I don't want you to be concerned. I don't want you to be upset about the fact that you still battle the flesh. I want you to remember you have an advocate. Everybody say advocate. You have an advocate. Now, what is that word advocate? Well, the word advocate comes from the Greek word parakletos. Now, this is a word you, you Bible scholars are probably familiar with because it literally means one called alongside to help. It's also used in the term of defender, and it's actually a legal term. It'll help you understand a bit of what it means to be an advocate if you think of the context of the courtroom. See, John is painting a picture of a courtroom with four different kinds of people. First, John would identify a courtroom, then there's a very important person in the courtroom, that would be the judge. And in this particular celestial courtroom, the judge is God the Father. Job 34, 12 says, God will not do wickedly. The Almighty will not pervert justice. The Almighty God, God the Father, is a judge. Not only is there a judge, in a courtroom you'll have a prosecutor. Now the prosecutor's job is to bring evidence of wrongdoing and to bring charges against the defendant. So here you have the, uh, the a prosecutor, in this case, is the accuser of the brethren. His name is, Jesus, his name is, is Satan, and in Revelation 12, 10, it says that he's the accuser of our brothers. Notice what it says about Satan in Revelation 12, 10. It says that he is the accuser of our brothers. Notice what it says, who accuses them day and night before who? Our God. You get the picture? That before God, you have an accuser? You have someone coming with charges against you. We understand this because we are the defendant in this case. See, you and I, we're on trial. We've been accused and we'll be trialed. We'll be tried. Romans 14, 12 says that each of us will give an account of himself to God one day. And so we are the defendant. So the judge is God the Father. The accuser is the devil. And the defendant, that's me and you. And if that's all there was in the courtroom, we are in serious, serious trouble. But there's a fourth person in the courtroom and his name is Advocate. There's an advocate in the courtroom for me and you. This advocate speaks for and alongside the accused. This advocate is Jesus Christ. And Romans 3 tells us there's no distinction for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Can I give you a, a picture to draw in your mind? The image called by the Apostle John is that every time John Wellborn sins, every time I lust with my eyes, every time I'm prideful in my heart, every time I, I'm short with my family and don't give them the attention they deserve that God calls me to give, every time I'm stingy with my money and resources, every single time I sin in any form, in word, in thought, or in deed, any time I sin by committing something and doing something God tells me not to do, or any time I sin by not doing what God has called me to do, every single time I sin, the accuser, the devil himself, approaches the throne of justice and when he approaches this throne of justice, he begins to quote scripture, I believe, to the God of the universe. He goes to the Father and says, you see that? Did you see what John did? Did you see how he sinned? Did you see the way he looked? Did you see the way he thought? Did you see the way he behaved? Did you see the way he talked? Did you see the way he sinned? And I believe that the devil begins to quote scripture and tell God, you know, God, your word says that to lust in your heart after a woman is as bad as, as, as committing adultery. So John, he's an adulterer. You know, you know God, your word says that, that pride is, is one of the seven deadly sins and, and God, he's just committed pride. So he's committed a 
deadly sin. Your word says that, 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 that for the wage of sin is death, God. So you have to bring the hammer down on John for his sin. At that moment and in that context, the accuser comes to the God of the universe. And what he's doing is he's proving I'm guilty. He's claiming that I deserve the righteous wrath of God for my sin. And he's telling God that to be righteous and true, God must destroy me. And by the way, he's right. The devil's right. Nearly every single thing the devil has said about me is true. I am a sinner. I do deserve the righteous wrath of God. Nearly everything the devil said about me is absolutely true. I've transgressed the law of God. I've fallen short of the glory of God. I've not come anywhere close to meeting the perfect righteous standard of God. I have no excuse for my sin. I have no justification for my sin. I have no escape from my sin. Why? Because my sin is ugly. Because my sin is hurtful. Because my sin is damning. And it is all my fault. I have nothing in that moment except an advocate. I have an advocate. And I don't just have any advocate. I've got the righteous son of God, Jesus Christ, as my advocate. I have someone special. I have someone unique. I have Jesus Christ, the righteous. John's explaining to these little children, don't be worried in the midst of your sin. I want you to know that before the Father, you have this advocate. Now, the typical attorney, the typical attorney will try to advocate for the innocence of his client in order to create a reasonable doubt in the minds of the judge and the jury. But my advocate actually doesn't do that. My advocate and your advocate doesn't go before the judge to say, hey, listen, judge, he's innocent. No, they doesn't. Our advocate goes before the judge and basically actually agrees with almost everything the devil said. He agrees that John's a sinner. He agrees that John deserves death and hell and destruction. He agrees that John is guilty and he agrees that John deserves punishment. My advocate goes to the throne of God not to advocate for my innocence or my justification. My advocate goes to the throne of God to advocate instead for his righteousness imputed to me. Father, you're right, John's sinful, and he's fallen short of the glory of God. But February 21st, 1993, in a little North Georgia church, as an 11-year-old boy, John repented of his sins and placed his faith and trust in me, which means that from that moment, he is now in me, Father. And what that means is, Father, the fact that he is in me, it means that, that I have taken the punishment and wrath for his sin. Father, you can't punish John for his sin. You've already punished me for his sin. Because on that cross 2,000 years ago, you poured out your righteous wrath for John's sin on me. And I drank the full cup of your wrath and the full cup of your, uh, your, your conviction and your judgment on his sin. And so you can't punish John for his sin because you've already punished me for his sin. So John is forgiven. He is clean and he is free. And Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18 is true about John now. His sins are as scarlet, but now they are white as snow. Praise God this morning. Thank God for his forgiveness and for his advocacy. So number one, you need to know that Jesus changes everything. First of all, he changes our position in heaven. And number two, I want to show you that Jesus changes our life on earth. Verses three through six say that by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. 
But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walks. See, John moves from talking about our position in heaven to now he's gonna talk to us about our life on earth. And this is a result, this change of life is a result of being saved. It's not the cause of being saved. That's very important to understand. We are not saved by our works. We are saved so that we can work. The result of being saved is that our lives are radically changed. And in this case, Jesus goes from being our defense attorney, our advocate, to where now Jesus is described as our example of righteousness. He's saying basically it's a terrible thing to claim we have been saved saying I know him without showing any spiritual growth, which is I am keeping his commandments. The Prince of Preacher Spurgeon continues. He says the first thing about a Christian is initiation, initiation into Christ. The next is imitation, the imitation of Christ. And notice what he says. We cannot be Christians unless we are in Christ and we're not truly in Christ, in him, unless we move and have our being in the li- and the life of Christ is lived over and over again by us in accordance to our measure. Warren Wiersbe notes it this way. He said, a slave obeys because he has to. If he doesn't obey, he'll be punished. An employee obeys because he needs to. He may not enjoy his work, but, but he does enjoy getting his paycheck and he needs to obey because he has a family to feed and to clothe. Notice this difference. A slave obeys because he has to. An employee obeys because he needs to. Notice what he says. A Christian is to obey his heavenly father because he wants to because he wants to. For the relationship between the Christian and God is one of love. That's why you find Jesus saying this in John 14 and verse 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's not a threat. Some of it preach it like a threat. Well, if you love God, you better go keep his commandments. It's not a threat. It's a statement of fact that if you really do love God, you really will keep his commandments. You absolutely will keep his commandments. It's an evidence of the fact you love God is that you want to keep his commandments. Some of you obey God like a slave master. Well, I better obey, otherwise I'm gonna be destroyed. So I have to obey because God is like a slave master demanding that I submit. No, 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 that's not true. Some of you obey because you want to or because you need to. You think, well, if I obey, then good things will happen to me, that I'll have a nice long life. And if I obey, then I'll have a successful marriage and I'll have a good business. But, but the fact is, we don't obey God because we have to. We don't obey God because we need to. We obey God because we want to, because we have a relationship of love with our Heavenly Father where we trust Him and we walk in obedience. See, John has spent much of the first two chapters of his letter trying to convince us that we are a sinner. But then he drops this bomb on us and says, wait a minute, wait a minute. (laughs) If you claim to be in the faith but aren't walking according to his commandments, you're a liar. You think, well, wait a minute, John, you just spent all this time convincing me I'm a sinner and I fall short of his righteous standard. Now you're telling me about falling short of his righteous standard. I'm now a liar and the truth isn't in me. What's going on, John? What's the deal? Well, he's gonna show us the difference. What's the difference in a lost person who sins and a saved person who still battles the flesh and struggles with the sin? Here's the difference. The difference is this, the believer struggling with the flesh hates his sin. Whereas the lost person who's walking in sin enjoys it. The difference is the believer battling the flesh knows the destructiveness of the flesh and realizes how damaging it can be and wants to see it removed and and overcome. But the lost person in sin is pretty well comfortable continuing in it. 
See, our own sin is the source of our greatest frustration. Think about your greatest frustration right now. And I, I, I'm guilty of doing this the wrong way on a regular basis. I start thinking about what I'm frustrated with. I start thinking about my neighbor, you know, that, that I'm not getting along with. Or I start thinking about my coworker that, that ticks me off every time I see them. I, I start thinking about all those Georgia Tech fans. They just get under my skin. <laughs> when in Rome, right, you know. I start thinking about all the frustrations of my life and what I find is that I find myself getting so frustrated with other people when in all reality, the greatest frustration in my life should not be others. The greatest frustration in my life should be myself. The worst sinner I know shouldn't be someone else. The worst sinner I know should be the one living right here in this body. Because I'm aware of my own sin. I'm aware of how dark and, and damaging it is. I know how destructive it is. And so because of that, I find myself in a situation where I can't justify it. I can't explain it away. In fact, what I need to know about my own sin is I can't love this sin. I must hate this sin. See, the believer is no longer regarding our sins as small. And that's a lot of thing what we do is say, well, okay, pastor, I, I sin, but my sin's like this and other people's sins are like this. I mean, yeah, I sin, but it's not as bad as his sin. I mean, I sin, but it's not as bad as her sin. No, the believer in Christ, when examining our sin before the Lord, we understand that our sins are not small. We understand, too, we can't play with our sins anymore. We can't joke about our sins anymore. We can't just blow them off like they're no big deal anymore. We start to realize the price that was paid for our sin, and all of a sudden we realize that the one who has been redeemed, we realize that, we, that our sin is nothing more than deadly poison that must be avoided and repented of. Spurgeon continues, it says, sin is dejected in the Christian's heart, though it is not ejected. Sin may enter the heart and fight for dominion, but for the believer, sin cannot sit on the throne. It's very important we understand what it means to repent and confess daily, daily. I heard a story about a godly father who was talking to his son about what a Christian was. And he was giving this incredible description about how a Christian never says things wrong and never Christian never does things wrong. And a Christian never, never hurts people or is angry without cause or a Christian doesn't, is generous and a Christian is always loving and a Christian is kind. And this godly father is telling his son all these things about what a Christian is and describing it so well. I mean, with everything, just described so carefully how loving and, and kind and, and gracious and patient and forgiving Christians are. And finally, after about a 20-minute description of how great Christians are, the little boy looked up at dad and says, dad, have we ever met one of these Christians? <laughs> Father realized he had painted a picture that wasn't reality. He'd paint a picture of the ideal, realizing that we fall short of that ideal. We all, the, the simple fact is this, friends, we need a better example than ourselves. We need a better example of what it means to be a Christian than one another. Now, we're grateful for one another, and the mentoring program you guys here is amazing. I'm thankful for it. But the fact is, we need to understand the example we have of what it means to be a Christian is deeper than any one person we could put on that pedestal. And to that, I would say that Jesus Christ changes everything. Number one, he's changed your position in heaven for you that are followers of Jesus. But secondly, he's changed your life here on earth and given you an incredible asset, his own example. What I want to do here to begin to wrap up the message is I want to ask a simple question. Hopefully you agree with me. Jesus changes everything. 
You agree, okay, pastor, I see it. He's changed my position in heaven. He's my advocate. And because of his death and resurrection, I can be forgiven. I can be set free. I can be made new. Okay, I'm with you, pastor. I'm absolutely with you on that. Jesus changes my position in heaven. Gotcha. Secondly, I I see what you're saying, that Jesus changes my life on earth, that he gives me this this new life, this new flesh, this new nature, this, this new ability to walk out his commands and to love others and to follow him. Okay, so I'm with you. Jesus changes my, 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 my position in heaven and Jesus changes my life on earth. What's left for me to do? Here it is. Jesus changes everything. But the question you gotta answer this morning is this. Will you let Jesus change you? you. Because I can testify all day long to the day that I was converted to Christ. I can testify all day long to to the way that Jesus sustains me and empowers me every single day of my life. I can testify all day long to people in my church family and the stories they could tell. I know you have those stories here as well. I'm privileged to have the chaplain for the New York Yankees as a member of my church. He's a dear brother and friend, and that brother has seen so many stories of life change of players and coaches and personnel across that organization. We could tell story after story after story of life change, and that would be a really encouraging thing to do, and we could sit there and listen all day long, but the ultimate question is not whether or not Jesus changes everything. We know he does. The real question we got to ask is this, will we let Jesus change us, change my position in heaven? and change my life on earth. Because there are basically two types of people that are sitting here today. The first type of person here today has never let Jesus change anything about them. You've walked in the door and you're here because somebody invited you or here because of tradition or here because it's, you know, it's just what you do on Sunday morning. You're just here. Maybe some of you, some of you come here, some of you uh, young single guys have chased a, a girl into church this morning and she won't date you unless you show up. So I want to say welcome to you. Glad you're here. I was in a, a, a seminary classroom one time, and the first day of the classroom, they asked the, to go around the entire room and for all the, the preacher boys to tell their testimony how they came to Christ. And I'm not lying to you. In a classroom of 20 preacher boys, 20 young seminarians, I want to say eight of them got saved as a teenager because they followed a girl to church. These are the pastors that are pastoring you. How amazing is that? For whatever reason you're here, you haven't let Jesus change a thing about you. And this morning I ask you the question, Jesus changes everything. Why won't you let him change you? For others of you sitting here and you, you've been saved, you can name a date or a time or you remember a moment when God transformed your life and you remember coming to faith in Christ, you remember by prayer, turning from your sin by faith and, and trusting Jesus with your life. But the fact is, is that you've kind of grown to believe things about yourself that aren't really true. And so when I'm up here talking about, hey, you're a sinner, you still battle the flesh, you think, oh, not really me, I'm, I'm good, I got everything under control, I've got everything under control, everything's okay, everything's fine, I don't still battle the flesh, I don't need that. Listen, Jesus has got to change your heart. because he can radically change your life, but it requires you to surrender yourself wholly and completely to admit, I'm a sinner. See, everyone in this room is holding on to something with their life. We're holding on to something with everything we've got. There's something we're placing our faith and our trust in, something we're holding on to above all else. And my argument to Cross Point Church before I get in the car and make the long trek back to New York City is this. The only thing worthy of building your life on and holding on to with all you've got is Jesus Christ. That's the only thing worthy. 
Some of you are holding on to a job because that's your identity. Some of you are holding on to a marriage or parenting. That's your identity. You're holding on to an identity in some other region, some other area. Maybe you're really, really good at something. You have a talent or skill that everybody knows that you can do, and you're holding on to something for yourself and your identity. What I want to encourage you with is this, is that the only thing worth and worthy of holding on to with all your life and all your heart and basing your existence on is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I read a story recently about a guy known as the human fly. He was known as a human fly because he could do this incredible thing that amazed everyone. He could climb buildings. He could climb buildings. No ladder, no ropes, no harnesses, no equipment, no special shoes. He could just climb buildings. He would scale 10-story buildings on the outside. What he would do it is he'd find crevices in the stone and the rock. He would find windowsills he could stand on. He, would, he could literally scale massive buildings, and his area of operation was in Southern California. One day, many years ago, With a large crowd watching, he decided to climb the side of a huge department store in Los Angeles. Large crowd on the sidewalk watching exactly what was going on. Sure enough, he took off. Clinging to window ledges, putting his fingers into crevices. People were amazed watching this man work. He moved from windowsills to ledges to crevices as he made his way to the top. But he got almost to the very top and he could not quite reach the top ledge of the roof of this department store. He had a good foothold on one of the windowsills and he had a good finger hold on one of the crevices and he was felt pretty secure, but he could not quite reach the very top ledge of this particular building. So he had to make a choice. Either one, he could climb back down and admit defeat and everybody be discouraged or disappointed or he could take a risk. And he thought he could take this risk because as he looked up to the final ledge of this building, just beyond his reach, he'd been up on his tippy toes as far as he could get, he just could not quite reach that top ledge He saw a protrusion sticking out just below the ledge, a protrusion sticking out. It looked like a piece of concrete or a a, a part of the stone that the building had been built with. And he thought, if I could just touch and grab that, that will give me the, 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 the confidence I need to throw my other arm over and I'll be at the top of the building. I'll stand up to my fans. They'll cheer, they'll clap, and they'll celebrate. The problem is he couldn't quite reach it. He couldn't quite reach it. And so the only way he would get, get hold of that little protrusion was to hop just a bit off that windowsill to grab it. He knew if I hopped just a little bit, I could grab it. But the problem with that is to hop was to give up the position that he had. When the paramedics arrived 20 minutes later, they walked up to the dead, lifeless body of the human fly. They were checking him out, getting ready to put him on a gurney, take him into the morgue. One of the paramedics walked over to a very tight-fisted, clenched right hand of the human fly. And he pried the cold, dead fingers of that clenched right fist. And inside what he saw was an old, rotted spider web. See, what the human fly thought could hold his body weight was nothing more than a cobweb. What he thought was a strong piece of concrete or stone that would sustain him to get where he wanted to go turned out to be nothing more than a spider's web that couldn't hold so much as a fly. And I think about that story and what it brings to mind is this. It brings to mind the fact that so many of us are clinging to a spider web of our job or a spider web of our parenting or a spider web of our marriage or a spider web of our friendships or a spider web of our financial success or a spider web of our personal identity. We're clinging to this spider web thinking it has to sustain us, it has to help us, it has to hold us up, it has to be what we need in order to survive. 
but when you cling to anything other than Jesus, it is as eternally useless to you as the cobweb was to the human fly. It won't hold. But Jesus, he changes everything. Jesus means you don't have to hold on to the cobwebs of life for your identity, for your position before God and your life on earth. Jesus, he changes everything. He changes your position in heaven. He changes your life here on earth. Jesus Christ, he changes everything. And the only question left is this. Will you let Jesus change you? To the unbeliever, this testimony of God's amazing power should call you to repentance and faith and trusting Jesus. If you've never let Jesus change you, in just a moment, I'm gonna pray. And after I pray, you're gonna be given instructions by one of the staff team members here, gonna tell you what to do next if you wanna follow Jesus and let Jesus change your life. For the believer, this text and this message hopefully will motivate you to worship because you know you have an advocate with the Father and you also know the Father has sent you Jesus as an example and one who can change your life. He changed your position in heaven and your life on earth. Jesus changes everything. Will you let him change you? Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the opportunity this morning to offer a word of encouragement to this church that I adore and thank you so much for. God, in Jesus' name, I pray across this room right now that there would be, that there would be a genuine stock and inventory being taken. I pray, God, across this room that anybody that is not yet turned from their sin and trusted Jesus with their life, that today would be the day of their salvation and today would be the day that you change their position in heaven and their life on earth. God, I pray for those in this room that may be tempted to think like I am from time to time that, that I don't struggle with the flesh, that there's no temptation in me to, to, to sin, that I'm fine, I'm okay, everybody else, they've got the problems. Lord, bring us to a place of humility before you. Surrender to your trust and to your, to your gospel. Father, I pray, God, for all that will happen at Cross Point Church in the remainder of the day that will glorify you and that you draw people to yourself. Thank you for Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.